The one I sent you that's like, oh yeah. when it enters, you can tap your untapped gates to draw a card for each, or when a gate enters, draw a card, because it seems good early and late. Yeah, that's that's real nice. Yep. I'm going to uh, probably draft too many guild gates and too many um, lockets, and I'll just draw too many cards and not actually have win conditions anymore. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I'm on that train. <laughs> Hello, I'm David Prestwood. And I'm Christian Wright. Welcome to episode number 11 of Let's Remember Some Cards, a Magic the Gathering podcast that's here to say, hey, let's remember some cards, and then does exactly that. Precisely. Well, back in episode two, we went over the eight cards in my signature spellbook, but more than two months later, David hasn't stepped up and shared his list. Okay, so we'll do that this week. We'll get to it. But you have to wait a little longer because first, hey, let's remember that. Hit that random card button. This week's random card is Obelisk of Grixis. Where is Ryan Overturf when we need him? Obelisk of Grixis was a three mana artifact. It was from Shards of Alara. It's real simple. It's tap, add black, blue, or red to your mana pool. This was a cycle, right? It was. Shards of Alara, for those who are maybe newer to the game or not aware, it was a set that had five different shards. And we kind of, they're so iconic, the names of the shards are tied with them, so they're Bant, which is blue, white, green. Naya, which is green, white, red. Jund, which is red, green, black. Grixis, which is red, black, blue. And finally, Esper, which is black, blue, white. They printed an obelisk for each of them. Yeah, before this, the only similar thing that had been printed was the cameo cycle from Invasion Block, which were three mana artifacts that tap for one mana of a two-color pair. So these were a strictly better version of those. We've moved on to the point now where the expectation is if you're paying for a three mana artifact that taps for mana and that's all it does, you're going to get one mana of any color. Like Manalith, which we just saw in Corset 19, is the base level for these three mana artifacts. And now they're a very common cycle for wizards to go on because they're too good when they're at two mana and three mana seems to be the right cost for that so you have an upside to it as well you have the key runes the clue stones and the original return to ravnica block you had banners and cons dragon monuments and dragon stark here and now the lockets again coming up to guilds of ravnica yeah so if you're not getting a mana of any color if you're getting some specific subset you do get some upside i mean some of those upsides were small people who played during dragon's maze will tell you horror stories about opening a thousand clue stones in their draft <laughs> just being miserable but some of them have been better than others and i think the lockets will will be interesting you know time will tell how that goes in uh, guilds of ravnica draft right and the nice thing is they fix your colors but it's not an auto include they're just a little too expensive to suddenly make your deck a five color bonanza it's really for hitting a splash or if you really are trying to accelerate to a more expensive card in your colors it helps with that a little bit as well i definitely tend to play these kind of things when i want both fixing and ramp i think i'm more likely to play them when i want ramp more than when i just want a little bit of fixing right you know like i'm if i have one that's two colors in colors i'm already in if i'm not interested in ramping it's probably not something i play but i might be the minority there so with that out of the way let's go right into your signature spell book okay here we go so as a refresher following on wizards of the coast's release of the eight card supplemental product signature spellbook jace we're asking people for the eight cards in their own personal signature spellbook. These can be cards that mean something to you personally, cards that you just love, cards you performed well with. Spoiler alert, that's not going to be mine. Uh, but, you know, they could be whatever you want. 
Exactly. And when we talked with Ryan Overturf back in episode four, he had some very strict personal rules for his spellbook. For example, only instants and sources are eligible. He was very much like uh, Omar in The Wire. He had a code and he stuck with it. So, David. You gotta have a code. You gotta have a code. Do you have a code? Do you have any rules or is there any theme for your signature spellbook? Nope. It's the Wild West, my friend. So, you're more of the Stringer Bell of the signature spellbook. I mean, absolutely. I think that I'm going to tell my wife that somebody called me Stringer Bell. She's going to roll her eyes very hard. On that note, let's start with uh, your signature spellbook. Okay, the first card in my signature spellbook, Villainous Wealth. Villainous Wealth. This is from Cons of Tarkir. It's X, black, green, and blue for a sorcery. Target opponent exiles the top X cards of his or her library. You may cast any number of non-land cards with a converted mana cost X or less from among them without paying their mana costs. What gets you going about this card? I've said a couple times on this show that my favorite thing to do is to play with other people's cards. I like cards like Gaunti, Lord of Luxury, that let me cast one of somebody else's card, or Itali, Primal Storm, that let me flip up, you know, if I have multiple opponents, multiple cards, and get to play them. Um, this has an X in the casting cost. I get to play with X of my opponent's <laughs> cards? It's just the most me thing that's basically imaginable. Um, I have played it in EDH. I have played it in Standard in a kind of green devotion deck that had Nykthos to tap for a ton of mana, and then Karametra's Acolyte, which we've talked about before. Three and a green, one four that taps for an amount of green equal to your devotion to green. So I could just cast a giant villain as well. That's amazing. There's been a lot of tools that can help you cast even bigger Villainous Wealths. What's the biggest one, and what other cards do you have to have with Villainous Wealth? Well, Nykthos is certainly a good one if you're in the right deck. My biggest one was probably in Commander. I play a deck that has uh, Tassiger at the helm, so it is Sultai Colors, uh, like Villainous Wealth. And the whole point of the deck is to cast the biggest Villainous Wealth possible. So people think, oh, this is a lands deck because you have Crucible of Worlds. And it's like, yeah, that's just kind of a way to get to a bigger villain as well. <laughs> this is a deck that plays Rift Sweeper, which is a creature when it enters the battlefield. You can get a card back from Exile just in case someone somehow exiles my villain as well because it is the deck's primary win condition. The biggest one I've cast that I can remember was for 38. And it was because I had an Azor's Gateway, which I had flipped. So Azar's Gateway is a two-mana legendary artifact. It's a mythic from Rivals of Ixalan that says one and tap, draw a card, then exile a card from your hand. If cards with five or more different converted mana costs are exiled with Azor's Gateway, you gain five life, which I always forget. You untap Azor's Gateway and you transform it. The backside is a legendary land called Sanctum of the Sun that just says tap ed X mana of any one color where X is your life total. So when you're starting with 40 life in Commander, that's actually pretty big. So I cast this 38 mana because I also had, uh, I don't remember what my life total was, but I had Cabal Coffers and Urborg oh. uh, in play. So all of my lands oh. were swamps and I got a bunch of mana. So I cast this, I held up some additional mana, my opponent countered it, I spell swindled his counter spell to get some treasures from the counter spell, and then it resolved. So I got all of this stuff to put it into play including Archaeomancer. So I was able to return the Villainous Wealth to my hand and Deceiver Exarch, which allowed me to untap my Sanctum of the Sun so I could <laughs> cast another Villainous Wealth. <laughs> but my opponent conceded before I could cast the second one. 
that's not fair, man. That's You have to resolve that villainous wealth. Come on. So I will say I played this in Khan's draft because I like to play the five-color dumb decks. And I didn't do, I don't remember anything epic with it, but it just felt really fun if I could actually resolve it and go, oh yeah, look, taking all your cards. <laughs> it's pretty great. The challenge in Limited was you really want to pay about seven for X to make sure you're kind of hitting enough things. And that's 10 mana, so it's very expensive. If you're ramping, it's a good way to do it, but 10 mana and three colors is uh, pretty difficult. It's just so much fun. And it creates this great game where you just start flipping cards off of the top of your opponent's deck and everyone including your opponent is actually kind of excited to see what happens exactly exactly if that's not a great magic card i don't know what is oh, certainly is for me so that's yeah. you know these are in no particular order but if i had to rank them villainous wealth would be very near the top so what's the next card in your signature spellbook? you know it's got to be doubling season you know it's got to be doubling season so, doubling season. Four colors and a green for an enchantment. This is from original Ravnica, the OG. If an effect would create one or more tokens under your control, it creates not one, but twice that many of those tokens instead. And an effect would put one or more counters on a permanent you control, it puts twice that many of those counters in that permanent instead. It doubles everything, right? Absolutely. This is a card that when I came back to the game, I looked at and uh, bought a playset of. I was not in a place where I was buying singles at that point, but I just saw it and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to own this so much. And one of the websites, I can't remember if it was Star City Games or somebody had four Spanish original Ravnica doubling seasons that were very cheap. And so I was like, well, they're cheaper than the English ones. And I took high school Spanish, so I bought them. And uh, I have those four in my modern doubling season deck right now. This is just the type of enabler I love. Panharmonicon is another example of this kind of card where you kind of take a turn off to play it and then everything you do from then on is incredibly stupid. My first commander deck was the Guru of Spores. He yes. does not should be named. Yeah. <laughs> Gave Guru of Spores. <laughs> Sigh. Oh. And my goal with the deck was to run out of dice. I had okay. a little Chessex mini dice and doubling season is a thing that helps you with that. Did you ever run out of dice playing with it? Oh, absolutely. It's super easy to do it. I run out of dice playing with this in modern. So see, I think this is why I started my infamous terrible dice bag. Basically, I keep all my dice not in anything fancy, but as David can attest, it's a ratty, clear Ziploc bag. Yeah, it's not a new Ziploc bag. It's like you found a Ziploc bag that was already old and then put dice in it. Oh yeah, pretty much. And I think I did it because I had a gave guru spores deck and i was like well i guess i just need all these tokens like i need these dice to represent tokens <laughs> like they only fit in a bag <laughs> so i too understand the need for putting a lot of dice on cards to represent different board states yeah the card's very cool it recently got a reprint in battle bond which people were very excited about because it got very expensive for a while it will be very expensive again primarily because there are a lot of cards that double plus one plus one counters but this is any counters and it includes loyalty counters. So, you know, that's the combo and why I play it in modern in my kind of jokey deck is you play a planeswalker, they'll come in with twice as much loyalty, which allows them to immediately ultimate and then you do stupid things from there on. You evaluate every planeswalker when you see it, not by how cool the first two abilities are, but we've had conversations, David, where you were like, so does the ultimate, is it worth it to play in the doubling season planeswalker deck? Yeah, I'm probably the only person who looks at the ultimate, doesn't care at all about the initial two abilities, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> does this win me the game or do something incredibly stupid? 
And if it does, that's great. So like, you know, Teferi, the new uh, Teferi oh, yeah. hero of Dominaria, people were looking at the first two abilities and thought it was great. And I looked at the ultimate and I said, yeah, it's in, we're doing it. And it turns out actually in standard that that ultimate is incredibly relevant <laughs> because it just wins games, but uh, modern as well. This card specifically and this type of card in general are just right in my wheelhouse, doing big, dumb things, but in a kind of a combo-y fashion. We have a sorcery. We have an enchantment. Both are green, but tell us what your third card in your signature spellbook is. Does it follow that pattern? No, this one's a little different. Uh, This is Eldrazi Displacer. Oh, Eldrazi Displacer. I love this card. Two colorless and a white for a 3-3 Eldrazi. Its first ability is Devoid, so technically it really doesn't have a color. And it has an activated ability, which is two generic and a colorless mana. And it says, exile another target creature, then return it to the battlefield tapped under its owner's control. Oh, baby. I love colorless mana. I loved the colorless mana mechanic. I'm excited to see colorless mana again in the future. And also this card flickers things. And flickering things is something, it's another part of magic that I love. If my first EDH deck was Gave, I mean, Gave, oh man, I'll never get used to that. Gave Guru of Spores. My second was Rune of the Hidden Realm, which is a Bant green, white, blue commander who flickers things, exiles them temporarily and returns them to the battlefield. And this does that. You can exile your own creatures with Enter the Battlefield effects. They come back and trigger again. You can exile your opponent's creatures. They come back tapped, you know, without counters, or, you know, you can get through attacks there are just a ton of different things you can do with this well also too Eldrazi Displacer kills tokens right absolutely yeah you exile a token tokens that are exiled don't come back I've used all of these different ways uh with Eldrazi Displacer I played this in standard within a red white tokens deck that played cards like Pia and Kirin Nalar which is a nice thing to flicker and get two Thopters because they two Thopters when they come into the battlefield but the real stupid combo in this deck was with Gideon ally of Zendikar an incredible card and Oath of Gideon so Oath of Gideon was two and a white for a legendary enchantment when it entered the battlefield you put two one one white core ally creature tokens onto the battlefield and then each planeswalker you control enters the battlefield with an additional loyalty counter on it that's the key to the combo so you play Gideon, ally of Zendikar. One of its abilities use you plus one, and Gideon becomes a 5-5 five, five indestructible creature. So you do that, you attack with the Gideon, he gets in, or they chump with something. You flicker him with Eldrazi Displacer, because Gideon is a creature at that point. He comes back into play with an extra loyalty, so it makes him five loyalty. Ultimate Gideon which gives you an emblem that creatures you control get plus one, plus one. Normally that kills Gideon, but he came in with an extra loyalty, so now he's around with one loyalty and you have this emblem. Next turn, you plus, make him a creature. He's a 6-6 six, six now. You swing in, they chump or take it or whatever. You flicker him again, he comes back, you make an emblem, and you just keep making an emblem every turn. This sounds like a really bad combo. It was a really bad combo, but I played it to some success at a Grand Prix Minneapolis in which I lost my winning in. There was one match at which my opponent uh, played a big Eldrazi and it triggered two Kozilek's returns in his graveyard, which dealt 10 to all of the creatures and basically wiped the board. But I had been doing this combo throughout the game. So the next turn I untapped, I played Chandra Flamecaller, whose plus one ability is to make two three one creatures with haste. Except I had four emblems, so mine were seven fives, and I killed him. 
So from what I'm gathering, just three cards in, you like to play with other people's cards, you like to double the amount of stuff you're playing with, and you like to play the stuff you're playing with repeatedly, but you don't like to interact with other people. You just like to kind of do your own thing. And... I guess I am that person who just wants to do crazy things and have nobody mess with me. Yeah, that's probably accurate. Okay. I will note that I really like this card in draft. For some reason, I opened this card repeatedly in drafts, and Oath of the Gatewatch is one of my favorite draft formats. I'm the only person who believes that, but I was literally undefeated in Paper Magic in this draft <laughs> format. I went 21-0 in seven drafts, and three different times I had uh, white-green support decks. Support was a mechanic that allows you to put plus one, plus one counters on other creatures you control. There were cards like uh, Saddleback Legac, which was a three and a green, three one lizard with support two, so you could put counters on other things. Uh, Relief Captain was an uncommon that was great. That was two white white for a three two that had support three. And in two different drafts, I had Eldrazi Displacer to flicker these things, plus Gladeheart Cavalry, which was a five green green six six elf knight with support six. So you play that, next turn you flicker it, and then you probably flicker it again if you have you know, a lot of mana available. <laughs> all your things are huge, and then you just kill your opponent. Gladeheart Cavalry does other things too, but the important thing is uh, make all your guys huge. That sounds absolutely fantastic. What is the fourth card in your signature spellbook? Vesuvan Doppelganger. Oh boy, Vesuvan Doppelganger. So I'm going to read the new text on this because the original... Uh, I think it's alpha or beta version you have has a lot more text that's very confusing. So Vesuvian Doppelganger, three colors, blue, blue for a shapeshifter, and it's naturally a zero, zero. So its text says, you may have Vesuvian Doppelganger enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield, except it doesn't copy that creature's color. And it has, quote, at the beginning of your upkeep, you may have this creature become a copy of target creature, except it doesn't copy that creature's color, and it has this ability. I like clones. I think clones are fun gameplay when you can get a copy of the best thing on the battlefield, or sometimes they're stuck in your hand when there's nothing good or nothing at all. Um, but Vesuvian Doppelganger, for me, was just my favorite card uh, when I started playing the game in 1994. The Quentin Hoover art is one of my favorite pieces of art in Magic history. And I just thought the card was incredibly interesting. As you implied, I recently acquired a beta version of this card, which was one of my Magic Holy Grails outside of Power 9 cards. And it's gorgeous, and I will never let it go. Oh, as you shouldn't. So I have a question. I guess we'll have to ask Richard Garfield about this, because I don't understand why Vesuvian Doppelganger keeps its color when it copies. Yeah, I don't have the answer for that, and I would be really interested on this particular card, because the other alpha card that copied a creature was just Clone, which is three and a blue, and it, it enters the battlefield as a copy of another creature, but it doesn't have the clause about color. Maybe because that was an uncommon, and this is a rare, they upped the complexity level. There were plenty of cards in Magic that cared about color, and so maybe the assumption was, if you are playing Circle of Protection Blue or Red Elemental Blast, that those things shouldn't be turned off just because your opponent plays this particularly powerful card. That sounds plausible. This is also early magic, so... <laughs> who, the heck, who the heck knows? <laughs> like, like they, they printed laces. I mean, this is... We're not... We're dealing with some really strange territory here. Yeah, it is particularly strange. I want to just read the original text on the card quickly. 
from my Veda version because it's one of my favorite things. I love this. We talked about Rock Hydra last week, and this original templating is crazy. This one says, I love how this starts. Upon summoning, Ooh. Doppelganger acquires all normal characteristics, in parentheses, except color, of any one creature in play on either side. Any enchantments on the original creature are not copied, <laughs> just in case you thought that was a problem. During controller's upkeep, Doppelganger may take on the characteristics of a different creature in play instead. Doppelganger may continue to copy a creature even after that creature leaves play, but if it switches, it won't be able to switch back. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. And here's the other thing, with old alpha beta unlimited cards for for a very long time when you had this many text it was not in a readable font it was very small and didn't read particularly well on the background so you were doing a lot of squinting across the table of your opponent's cards 100 percent. plus everyone was playing lands in front so their creatures were further away it was a very confusing time <laughs> okay so we're halfway through let's go with the next card in your spell book Okay, enough of this creature stuff. I'm going back to sorceries with Commune with the Gods. Oh, man. Commune with the Gods. It is a card common from Theros, actually. So we've talked a lot about Theros. uh, I'm glad you have a card in that set that's near and dear to your heart. So Commune with the Gods is a one colorless and one green for a sorcery. You reveal the top five cards of your library. You may put a creature or enchantment card from among them into your hand, and you put the rest into your graveyard. So this card doesn't seem too interesting. It's a sorcery that fills your graveyard, replaces itself if you hit correctly. Um, But this is really emblematic of the first standard deck I ever built, which was a black-green graveyard-themed deck uh, around the time of Born of the Gods. Um, And I'll just run through this deck list really quick, and you can kind of see what it was about. So uh, it had four Elvish Mystics and two Deathrite Shamans. It was a mana fixing. I love that this deck is no longer legacy legal, by the way. I still have a paper copy of it that now I can't play in any possible format. <laughs> it had four Nemesis of Mortals, four Night Howler, four Herald of Torment, uh, because, you know, I love bestow creatures, two Gerard Golgari Lich Lord, one Nylea God of the Hunt, one Desecration Demon, four Seder Wayfinder. Similar to this, it was a 1-1 that you reveal the top four cards of your library and could put a land into your hand and the rest of the graveyard. Two Shadowborn Demons, two Sylvan Caryatids, three Grizzly Salvage, another card that's like Commune with the Gods, where you, you reveal the top five cards and can put a creature or land into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. Two Heroes Downfall, one Whip of Erebos, and of course, four Commune with the Gods. Only 20 land in this deck. The goal was to fill your graveyard with things, cast big Night Howlers, big Nemesis of Mortals. It just seemed like the kind of combo-y thing I still like to do. When I brought this to Labyrinth Puzzles and Games in DC and I played my first round, my opponent said, oh, this is like the Conley Woods deck. And I didn't know who Conley Woods was. I hadn't seen a deck list or anything online. I just made this up on my own and bought a bunch of cards for it. I thought Conley Woods was a place. (laughs) It sounds like a arc or something I'm like oh this is there a place called conley woods where there's like a game store where somebody plays this deck i have no idea um but it turned out that this was actually a uh, minor thing that uh, some people were doing because magic brewer conley woods built a deck like this he stole your ideas stole them yeah. the deck was super fun it had a lot of game against tier one decks in that format and so even though i was even more of a filthy casual than i am now i got to go kill my opponent's things and smash them with a 10 10 nemesis of mortals 
sometimes 13, 13 flyers <laughs> with Herald of Torment on them. It was just a blast. What is your next card? This is going to be interesting. So I like putting things in my own graveyard. Sometimes I like putting things in my opponent's graveyards. This card is Phoenix, God of Deception. Oh, Phoenix. So Phoenix, God of Deception, three colors, blue, black for a four, seven legendary enchantment creature. <laughs> God. So uh, much happening here. So much happening. It is from Born of the Gods. It is indestructible. As long as your devotion to blue and black is less than seven, Phoenix isn't a creature. So you have to have at least seven blue or black um, pips of mana on permanence you control for it to be a creature. Its next ability is more important. Creatures you control have tap. Target player puts the top X cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard where X is this creature's toughness. Yeah, unsurprisingly, I like mill decks. <laughs> so just vain person who uh, thinks that milling people is fun. Um, Phoenix, I've always thought was an interesting card. I've talked about my Yisan the Wanderer Bard deck that was basically a uh, creature tutor deck. It played a one of Phoenix um, because sometimes games would go long. You'd play Phoenix. It gives your creatures its ability. You could just tap all your creatures on the battlefield and mill your opponent on the spot. Um, I have a blue-black commander deck where Phoenix is the commander. My goal is never to have him be a creature so that he's very difficult to remove. I mean, that makes him an indestructible enchantment, so good luck, everyone. Um, <laughs> but the goal is to try to mill out my three other opponents. And I built the deck because I thought mill would be kind of a fun, different way to attack the format. Um, it might actually be my best commander deck. Which is amazing because it's not even each player, it's target player. That's right. So you have to go individually and be like, nope, you're dead. Nope, you're dead. Yeah, you're milling a few hundred cards. And I've won with this card on turn four a couple of times. Again, it's this kind of combo thing that I like to do. You look at this card and you're like, wait a minute, it's a five mana four seven that's sometimes a creature and you're milling your opponent. And it's like, yeah, I just, I love everything about it. That's awesome. So I do have one story about this. Ooh. I played a born of the gods ptq or i think it's maybe one of the first pptqs i can't remember but i was at a period i was in one of my small periods where i wanted to be very a lot more competitive so i thought you know what i'm gonna grind born of the gods on match the gathering online and then i'm gonna go to as many local pptqs as i can so i did that the first one i went to was at a store in Northern Virginia. I went with a friend of ours named James Wiley. Really great guy. We're both a little more competitive at the time. And I was so jazzed. I was ready to play Brimaz. I had practiced this miserable draft and sealed format. I was so excited. And my only win condition in the pool I opened was the Phoenix and playing things like Monomic Wall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> and That's I was so totally disappointed. Nuts. And I was just like, I'm not going to win this one, am I? <laughs> So Phoenix let me down and I never got to play with it. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Everyone should have the opportunity. You can borrow my deck sometime if you like. Oh, I will. No, I, I pr imagine I'd appreciate a lot more when I can actually cast it. But That's, that's a good shout out to James Wiley. Uh, I was thinking about him earlier because he's the first person that I cast a giant villain as wealth against. Well, there we go. We'll have to get him on the show so he can remember some cards with us. So Phoenix, you, so you like to mill, you like to put stuff in graveyards, you like to play with your own cards, you like to play with other people's cards, and you like to do everything twice. 
So you're going to have to explain this next card your signature spellbook a little bit. What is it? So it's actually two cards. I just copped out, and I couldn't come up with which one I liked better. They're so close. They're Rook Egg and Hornet Nest. So Rook Egg was originally printed in Arabian Nights. It's three colors in a red for an egg, bird egg. It's a 0-3, and when it dies, you make a 4-4 red bird creature token with flying at the beginning of the next instep. Uh, I'll just say both of these are zero power creatures that discourage your opponent from attacking, kind of like Dragon Egg, like you mentioned. Right. Um, but this is a card. I loved the art. It's its original Christopher Rush art. I was very fortunate to take my playset of Arabian Nights Rook Eggs to a GP, and Christopher Rush signed them for me and, um, not long before he died. Um, so I have this now signed playset uh, that are beautiful. But when I returned to the game, one of the decks that I still had built. Uh, in addition to my stasis deck, was a deck that played Rook Eggs and Nether Shadows, which was a card that cared about creatures being above it in the graveyard, and Hell's Caretaker, which was originally from Legends, where during your upkeep you can tap it to sacrifice a creature in play to return a card from your graveyard, and I would sack a Rook Egg I had in play, get a 4-4, and then return another Rook Egg from my graveyard, or return something else that wanted to be in my graveyard. And it was, again, this kind of combo-tastic deck, but I just have really fond memories. It was the first real combo deck I ever built, and uh, I still just love this card. And on that note, uh, Hornet's Nest, kind of the same thing. Two colors and a green, close to the same mana cost. It's a 0-2 Insect from M15, has Defender, but whenever Hornet's Nest is dealt damage, you put that many 1-1 green Insect creature tokens with Flying and Death Touch onto the battlefield. Yeah, so again, a zero-power creature that discourages attacking, but I played this in my aforementioned Yisan the Wanderer Bard deck that had Yisan could tutor it up, or Court of Calling can tutor it up, both at instant speed, so your opponent attacks you, and in response, you flash in this, you block, you get a bunch of 1-1s, you play Satessin Tactics, which was a fight card, but it had Strive, so you could fight multiple things, and it's like, okay, well, I block your Arbor Colossus, I guess I make six 1-1 Hornets, and then I'm going to fight your team with all of my Hornets and kill you with the rest of my creatures. <laughs> I was a little bit known for this card at Labyrinth, which is really my first LGS, where I was known for just playing bees. bees. <laughs> uh, everything that involved me in my first LGS just devolved to talking about bees. Um, <laughs> I was an evangelist for Hornet Nest and Hornet Queen. So funny enough, our only sanctioned match ever, which I was surprised, I thought we'd played more, um, I lost to your B deck. You did. You lost to the Yisan deck. Yep. I presumably flashed in Hornet Nest and blocked something of yours and fought your team with all my Hornets. I'm sure it was great. Uh, it sounds about right. <laughs> so, okay, last card in, technically your last card in your signature spellbook. This one, I think, is a recent addition that's near and dear to your heart. Yeah, it's Swords to Plowshares. Swords to Plowshares? You mean the Swords to Plowshares that almost made top eight of the Magic the Gathering bracket? That's the one. It was so close. I heard a rumor that we did an entire show on it, uh, episode nine. Um, I remember we did cards that were sort of plowshares. That's right. We also did swords to plowshares. So I will read this one. Okay. Very simple. A single white mana for an instant. Exile target creature. Its controller gains life equal to its power. I'm not going to go over it here. Uh, you know, you can listen to episode nine to go in depth, but I will say that the whole process of writing a testimonial for the magic bracket, 
tweeting about Swords to Plowshares every day, debating it with people, doing the podcast, uh, just you know, made me love the card even more. And I think it's something that certain people will identify me with for quite a while, and I'm totally okay with that. Oh, there's definitely worse cards to be identified with, and the fact that you have swords that you identify with is amazing. So real quick, I just want to say, on last thing on Sword to Plowshares, um, Greg Michael, noted friend of the show, who will be appearing on our show soon, wink, wink, he was surprised that we didn't include Pitfall Trap in our Sword of Plowshares list. So we didn't. That's right. So Pitfall Trap is two and a white for an instant trap. Uh, and it says, if exactly one creature is attacking, you may pay white rather than pay Pitfall Trap's mana cost. Destroy target attacking creature without flying. And so the reason we didn't put this in the list is because it doesn't exile the creature. Although he's right that it definitely deserved a mention. You know, it's deceptive because uh, it looks like it costs two and a white, but really it it's white mana. Yeah, it's an honorary sort sort of plowshares. Yeah, thanks for calling that out on Twitter, Greg. Anybody else who wants to tweet at us about things we got wrong, we'll probably mention you in the show as well. So if that's what you're into, please go ahead and do so. That's that's a fantastic Century Spellbook. Um, were there any honorable mentions or close calls that you were almost about to include, but you left off? Yeah, absolutely. I spent way too much time thinking about this list, uh, and there were some that hurt a little bit to leave off, um, but I'll just shout them out here. Uh, one of them is Illusionary Mask. It's one of the first unlimited cards I had that wasn't reprinted and revised. I still have a couple of them. It's an insane card that I'm sure we always played wrong then and nobody really understands now. I'm just going to read the current oracle text of this card and I'll just leave it at that. It's two mana for an artifact. It says, X, you may choose a creature card in your hand whose mana cost could be paid by some amount of, or all of, the mana you spent on X. If you do... You may cast that card face down as a 2-2 creature spell without paying its mana cost. If the creature that spell becomes as it resolves has not been turned face up and would assign or deal damage, be dealt damage, or become tapped, instead it's turned face up and assigns or deals damage, is dealt damage, or becomes tapped. Activate this ability only time you could cast a sorcery. I'm not going to go into it. We could do a whole show on this card. Maybe we will at some point, but I just love it. Morphs. Basically morphs. Um, Additionally... Uh, Stasis, which we've talked about a couple times, is probably on my list. Mana Drain, um, which, you know, is currently a Strictly Better Counterspell is on the list. And I gotta say, Denrova Horror. I just love playing with that card basically more than anything else. I had great drafts with it, and uh, I do love my uh, blue-black Demir cards. And you went really deep on our previous episode where we talked about the fantasticness that is Denrova Horror. Yeah, love it. So that's my whole list. My cards were Villainous Wealth, Doubling Season, Eldrazi Displacer, Vesuvan Doppelganger, Commune with the Gods, Phoenix God of Deception, Rook Egg Slash Hornet Nest, if I'm allowed to do that. I did it. And Swords to Plowshares. Well, that sounds like a fantastic signature spellbook. Uh, it'll be in stores, unfortunately, never like my signature spellbook, but it's immortalized forever in audio form. Thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Twitter at RememberMTG or send us an email at RememberSomeCards at gmail.com. If you really like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Uh, we're looking to get more feedback, but also we just want people to remember some cards with us. So please share and spread the love. Yes, we would love your feedback. Please tell us what cards you want to remember. Tell us what we get right. Tell us what we get wrong. And then don't forget to subscribe 
and leave reviews wherever you get your podcast that helps get more ears on the podcast and uh, helps us do more things in the future. And until next time, don't forget to remember some cards. Remember some cards.